Remember uh, last week we were dealing with the story of David being betrayed yet again by the Ziphites for the second time now. He goes after uh, or, or he goes into the land near the Ziphites. The Ziphites either because they hate David or because they want to seek favor with Saul, go and tell Saul where David is. And they basically sell David out. And so Saul comes looking for David. And Saul and his general and the rest of his army are there in the camp, and they're sleeping. And David and his man walk up, His actually his nephew, Abishai, walk up to the encampment. They see them sleeping there. They see Saul laying there asleep next to his general, who is also asleep. Bad move. And Saul has his spear stuck in the ground near his head, and he has his water canteen there near his, his spear. And Abishai sneaks into the camp, steals both the water canteen and the spear. They sneak out. It seems that David has learned his lesson pretty clearly in this text, that he is not going to lay a hand against Saul, but he is resolved to let the Lord handle the matter uh, for him. So whenever the Lord seeks to take Saul's life, he will, and David is resigned to just let the Lord's will play itself out. And so he takes the spear and the canteen, they go across the valley and yell at Saul, and David kind of throws Saul's uh, general under the bus and says, he was asleep next to you, by the way, and uh, he, should, he deserves death. And um, I'm sure he loved that. But, uh, but, <laughs> but, uh, but anyway, they, uh, he, he tells him, look, I don't want to kill you. I could have killed you on a number of occasions, and I, and I don't want to. I'm not going to lay a hand against you, and yet you still continue to come after me. Saul again repents and says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. This is the second time now that Saul has repented before David and says, I'm not, I'm not going to kill you. I'm not going to come after you. And um, David doesn't trust him at all. David, for good reason, knows that this man is demon-possessed and is often plagued by a tormenting spirit. And so David says, you know what? Uh, it's not worth the risk. In fact, living in this land, in this area, it's better to entrust myself to the Philistines than to entrust myself to Saul. At least the Philistines, I think, might keep their word. And so David yet again goes to Achish, the king of the Philistines, and says to him, uh, let, me, let me live in an area near you that I, you know, I'll get out from under your wing, but just let me live in the area near you. And so he sends, Achish sends him down to Ziklag, and uh, David is living down there with his men in Ziklag. Now, David is a crafty individual in the sense, I think in the best sense of the word. The Bible, we talked about last week, we didn't have a whole lot of room uh, in the text to really say David was uh, being nefarious in what the Lord had asked him to do or anything like that. It seems more that David is seeking to really preser preserve his own life, and so he's playing a, a diplomatic game. And he's trying to make the best of a bad situation, and he's trying to keep the Philistines from killing him and his men, and he's trying to stay away from Saul. So how do you accomplish both things at the same time? You have to have a lot of diplomatic skill. And so it seems that David has a little bit of that. He is, um, he is taken to raiding territories that are near him. And he has taken his men. They have gone into some areas in, um, in uh, the, the south of Judah, in the southern area of Judah, and has told Achish, has reported back to Achish 
that all of the spoils and all of the enemies that he uh, is going after are really the Israelites, people from the land of Judah. Although the spoils actually came from Judah's enemies. So David is kind of playing this little politically savvy game where he is making it appear to Achish that he is not doing, uh, that he is doing harm to the Jews so that Achish will trust him. I don't know in the end that Achish really cares who he's raiding, but the reason that he's making it appear as though he's raiding Israel is because it causes Achish to say, oh, David's becoming a stench in the nostrils of the Israelites. So it leads Achish to be able to trust him a little bit more and not, uh, well, turn his back on David. But what in reality is happening is that David is actually raiding Judah's enemies and taking the spoils from them. And then he kills all the people that might say otherwise so that they don't go back to Achish and report David is doing this and he's lying about it. Or he's gilding the lily, I think is another way of phrasing it. Um, And so... uh, David is kind of putting himself in this little bit of a sticky situation. David's no doubt in the midst of a sticky situation. But to show David's political savvy, I want to read a a passage that I didn't include in the verse packet just because of my own mistake. But um, it comes from 1 Samuel chapter 30, and we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this next time. But this is what uh, David is going to do after or right up, right up at the point where, where Saul actually dies or, or right there before Saul actually dies. It's in 1 Samuel 30, verses 26 to 30. Uh, David, it says this, When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel and Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Arir, in Shifmoth, in Eshtimo, in Rakal, in cities of the uh, Jeremelites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Atak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. With all the names, it can. It's like reading a Dr. Seuss book sometimes. Um, so, 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 he. What does he do with the spoils? He collects them, and then he uses them to curry favor with the Israelites. Well, no doubt, Achish wouldn't like that. Okay, for sure. And so he's kind of keeping that under cloak and dagger from Achish for sure. But David is playing this politically savvy game. Why? Because David is stuck in the middle of a really bad situation that he didn't really ask for. He's kind of pushed in this situation because Saul is a crazy man and Saul wants to kill him. And so he's been pushed into the wilderness and into this sticky situation. But what is very interesting about this passage, these couple, few passages that we're going to read is that not only is David in a sticky situation, but the, the author of 1 Samuel is wanting you to see the difference between David and Saul, who actually are both in the middle of a very sticky situation. 
Both of them are in bad circumstances, but the way the Lord responds to each of them is very, very different. Okay, so David is playing this little politically savvy game, but at at some point, David's little masquerade is going to come back to haunt him because now Achish is starting to really trust him. You know, hey, David, you're doing good. You're working for me. You're a stench in the nostril of your own people. I'm loving this, by the way. And David's actually really good at fighting, it turns out. We knew that from the very beginning when it took one shot to knock down uh, the Philistines' fiercest warrior, uh, Goliath. And so uh, Achish is starting to, to trust him. And so David is finding himself caught on the wrong side of this battle that's brewing between the Israelites and the Philistines. Now think about it. If, if the Philistines are going to go up against Israel, and David has proven himself a loyalist to the Philistines, what, and, and Achish really quite likes David, what do you think Achish is going to want him to do when they go fight Israel? Come fight with me! Right? You're a great fighter. Why would I waste a great fighter who has lots of men who are loyal to him? Of course I'm going to ask you to come along with me. So the Philistines are gathering their army at Aphek. Now remember that name. Just pin that in your mind or star it or circle it in your worksheet or whatever you want to do. But the Philistines had gathered at Aphek and their, their intent is to go up to battle with Israel and defeat them and Achish naturally insists that David join him in battle. That, that is in uh, 1 Samuel 28, 1-2. Somebody read that out loud for us. It's on your verse packet back there. So Achish is quite fond of David, and I think we're supposed to take David's response in also a politically uh, astute sort of way. Uh, You have to understand the situation he's in. He is not loyal to the Philistines. The Philistines do think he is loyal to them, but we've already read the passage at the end that he's collecting all these spoils, and his intent is to give them to to the Jews. He's not loyal to the Philistines, but if he, if he outs himself right now, they're going to kill him. So it's just not wise for him to do it. Well, okay, well, if you want me to go up against the Israel, okay, you're going to see what we can do then. All right. Okay, well, you'll, I'll, you'll be my bodyguard for life. But what's interesting is, so uh, uh, he insists that David joins him, and Achish had become such a believer in David that he insisted on David and his men fighting with Gath's troops in the United Philistine offensive against Israel, but he has continued to misjudge David. He appoints him as bodyguard uh, over him, which the word literally means watcher for my head. Watcher for my head. Do you remember a time when David has gone up against another warrior from Gath, from the Philistines? And do you remember what happened to that soldier's head? He cut it off. 
So now the irony in the story is we're some years later, we're getting very, very close to David's reign. So sometime around 1011 is pretty close to the time where we're sitting at, probably about 10 years or so after the battle with Goliath. And now David has become the watcher over the head of the king of Gath, which is heavily ironic. Bill. Well, there, there's some debate about it. They were, it appears originally, at least their ancestors originally from Crete or somewhere around Crete, seafaring people. They landed on the shores of the Mediterranean Sea and the, and the land of Canaan, and they settled there. Um, there is reference to Canaan, the Canaanites before. Uh, there's reference all the way back in the Pentateuch, the very early books of the Pentateuch, in, uh, when Moses is coming out with the children of Israel out in, in the Exodus. But um, that is before the historical record has them in the land. And so what we suspect is that's the ancestors of the Philistines, and the Philistines were a product of that group and another group that kind of merged and basically came out of them. So that's what at least we think that supports uh, both the Bible and historical evidence. I think. So. That's right. Yep, that's right. There you go. Nope. It doesn't. Uh, but there were groups of people that were referred to in a similar vein and from a similar area as we, as later the Bible will attest the Philistines from. And so, uh, so it, it seems pretty evident that those are at least were the ancestors of the Philistines. And so when the Bible refers to them as the Philistines, it's writing to a modern day audience who knows who the Philistines are, but it's referring to their ancestors, probably. Um, okay, so... Here's the watcher. The wa- he is appointed watcher of the head. Okay, now he had once obviously cut off the, the head of another Philistine from Gath, uh, and now he's sort of more or less the personal bodyguard of Achish. Um, but Achish, it doesn't seem, realizes the danger of putting David in this position because he doesn't realize that there is... I was Philistine from Gath, by the way, if you didn't get a chance to write that down. He doesn't realize that there, could, there is a, a fifth column inside... Uh, Philistine territory, that fifth column being David, who is secretly against the Philistines and uh, making it appear as though he's, he's not. Now, that is all the first part of David's story. Then the author stops David's story and jumps into Saul's story, a story that probably most of you are very familiar with. Israel had gathered at Gilboa, <coughs> which is a mountain uh, seven or eight miles south of uh, Shunem. Let's, uh, I just want to, I'll come back to this slide in just a second, okay? I want to show you this little geography. All right. Shunem, Gilboa, Endor. That's going to become really important in just a minute. Endor sounds like a planet on Star Wars or something. But Mount, Mount Gilboa, Endor, Shunem, Aphek, Gath, Ziklag. Remember, David is down here. Uh, Achish is king over Gath. Ziklag, where David is, and Gath, they're going to work together, kind of. They've gathered their men at Aphek. That's the end of the David story, at the first, anyway. 
Israel, Saul has gathered them here uh, against Israel, and we'll find out uh, about Shunem here in just a second. Um, but uh, the Philistines, so we've got, let's go back to the slide here. Uh, there we go. So Israel had gathered at Gilboa, a mountain about seven or eight miles south of Shunem. And there Saul is worried because the Philistines are marching an offensive, or are, are mounting an offensive against Israel, and he's panicking. Now, do you remember who has died? Samuel has died. How did Samuel, how was Samuel an aid to Saul? Samuel told Saul what the Lord was wanting him to do. Now, Saul turns out just disregarded that altogether most of the time. However, if Samuel has died and you find yourself in a weird position where you don't know what the Lord is going to do and you cannot get a hold of Samuel, he's in the ground you start to panic, or Saul does. And as it turns out, Saul is seeking the Lord, and he, can't, he cannot be found. And so, um, every time he goes to the Lord for a response, the Lord does not give him a response at all. doesn't matter what he, how he seeks to get that response. The Lord doesn't give him a response. And so, he resorts to witchcraft. He's going to pursue a witch to try to help him get the answer that he is seeking. Oh boy. Somebody read 1 Samuel 28, 3-7. All right, so necromancy or necromancers had been uh, evicted from the land or had been kicked out. Uh, They'd been ruled illegal uh, by Saul. Is that up there? It's not up there. There it is. Necromancy. Necromancy and uh, all the arts associated with it were banned. They were banned by the law, which we'll talk about in just a minute. Uh, God doesn't want any association of his people with necromancy or any of the associated fortune-telling, palm-reading, all of those kinds of things. Doesn't want his people, hold on one second, Bill, doesn't want his people associated in any way with that art. And so they've been evicted from the land. However, his men seem to know exactly where you can find one if you really want one, right? So his men, he's like, he's like seek out for me a, a witch. We got a witch somewhere around there. And they're like, there's one over an indoor. I mean, he told me there was, you know. Uh, so <coughs> I've never been there, but I heard. I heard about it from somebody. I killed him, though, so don't worry about it. Uh, so they go, and Saul dresses in his non-royal attire to go to Endor by night to try to inquire. He is uh, disguised. He's got his Groucho Marx mask on, you know, his glasses with the big nose and the mustache. Uh, Bill had a question, then James. Yeah. 
uh, one who consults the dead. So that, that's correct. Uh, they would all be cast under the, really the same umbrella. So a witch could potentially do any number of, would be more of a general term for somebody who practices dark arts. Right, right, right. And I don't know that they necessarily conjure up spirits of the dead. I guess that's part of it. They do conjure up spirits. Uh, yes. Wicca, I, I'm not sure exactly uh, if, it's, if it's always dead people, but they, they do talk to spirits for sure. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Sure. Which we can talk about demons and dead spirits later. Uh, James had a question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do they? How do they always know? You know, it's like how's that? How's that the case? But anyway, his his men know. I gotta speed up a little bit just here. So his men know, and they point him to Endor, where they happen to know or have heard a guy tell him a story about a, a witch that lives there, and so they happen to know where she lives, and they take him by night. He's under cloak and dagger. He's not to be recognized, and when they get there. She thinks it's a trap, that this is like a sting operation, and she's like, what are you talking about, witchcraft? I don't do witchcraft. I don't know who you're talking about. Who did you come to see? What's the secret passcode sort of thing? And, uh, and Saul has to reassure her that he's not going to do anything to her. And the irony in the story is that Saul swears on the Lord's life as Yahweh lives that she won't be punished by something that Yahweh abhors. The irony here in the situation, he is not getting an answer from the Lord, and yet he can go into the witch at indoors tent or whatever and assure her by Yahweh's life that she won't be punished, even though Yahweh has said, I'll put to death anyone who practices this divination inside uh, the camp of Israel. And so... Once she's assured that she won't be punished or that they're not going to snitch on her, uh, because snitches get stitches, we all know that. Uh, in this case, snitches get stitches by witches, which is, which is also, which <laughs> oh, the groans. Uh, so she she's assured that they're not going to tell anybody. And so she asks who he wants to conjure up, and he says, I need you to conjure up Samuel from the dead because I don't want to let him, him rest. I need, I need an answer. And uh, she, so she does this. And she is terrified once Samuel actually comes up from the dead. Now, here's what's unclear in the text. We're not sure whether... She's faking this for Saul, 
I don't think that's right. So it's possible, some have, have argued, she's deceiving Saul or she's good at, you know how palm readers are today. There's a lot of palm readers. They're not really reading your palm. They're just playing tricks on you. Illusionists, right? Yeah, they're kind of doing those sort of things. Exactly, yeah. So, so it's unclear whether she's doing that. The Lord might be speaking through her to, uh, to Saul. Or once Saul comes up from the dead, once Samuel comes up from the dead, she realizes by some way, whether it's the Lord's revelation or maybe Samuel says something to her, that who she's talking to is Saul, who's the king. And she starts wigging out, man. Because she is, she's going crazy. Well, let's read this. Second, or First Samuel twenty-eight, eight to fourteen. Somebody read that out loud for me. Yeah, that's good, right there. Uh, so there's two things that Samuel tells Saul through the necromancer and, uh, to convey to, to Saul. Samuel tells the necromancer to tell Saul, basically, or he talks to her, whatever, um, to tell him two, two things. One, once again, you have forfeited your right to rule. You've woken me up from a good nap I was having or whatever. And uh, you, you have forfeited your right to rule, and David is going to take your place on the throne, and your sons and you are all going to die tomorrow. So when is this that Saul is talking to the witch? This is the night before the battle, all right? The night before the battle, Saul consults the witch. She tells him, you, or she tells, Samuel through her tells him, you and your sons are going to both die, or all of you are going to die tomorrow. All right, Bill. All right, so let me picture this. So we have uh, Saul going to the, the witch or medium of Endor, and, and, and he asks him, who do you want me to conjure up? Yeah. Okay. And his answer is, I want you to conjure up or bring back from the dead Samuel. Yep. So Saul didn't see anything. Apparently. Nobody sees anything but the witch. That's right. Well, that is the question. We don't. But I'm going to talk about that in just a second. So we don't know for sure what exactly this is. But there are a couple of things that I would submit to you. So first of all, let's talk about this for just a second. Because I think the natural question comes, what do we really make of this story? Uh, how much does this story tell us about life after death? 
What does this say about life after death? Does it say anything at all about life after death? Uh, Is what she's seeing real or fake? First thing we can say, necromancy and witchcraft uh, were expressly forbidden in Israel's culture. Uh, We see that in several passages, but it seems as though uh, Israel had some history of consulting witches and uh, practicing divination or uh, perhaps not doing all that was required as far as necromancy goes um, in, in accordance with the law. Now, uh, though many have, many will suggest that what she's seeing is, is just a fake vision because they're, I think because that they're afraid of what implications that has on the afterlife, which I, I don't think are any. Um, but what, what I do think is true of the story is that the story carries with it a stamp of realism. That, and, and, and this, is, this is sort of a, I, I guess this is a little bit of just of opinion when you read the story. The author does not give any indication that this is false and gives every indication that this is very real, right? So I think the most natural reading of it is to say, yeah, it's what happened. She conjured up Samuel and Samuel's spirit by permission of the Lord came back. Spoke through her to Saul and told him exactly what's going to happen. And the reason that, part of the reason why it has a stamp of realism to it is because what Samuel says actually comes true. So the prophecy is not false. And part of the prohibition against necromancy is you're going to see these dreamers of dreams and these practices of arts and these witches and mediums and people like this and psychics who will say things and if what they say doesn't come true, then it's evident that they're false, right? That's part of the evidence that it's a false prophet that's coming to talk to you. Well, what, what she says and, and the fact that she recognizes that's Samuel, this is Saul, uh, it seems to have this very real component to it. And so there seems to be no reason why we should doubt what's really happening there. Um, now, the other thing is that Scripture uh, describes the practices of divination, necromancy, witchcraft, all of these things, uh, not as futile, worthless, but as pagan. Meaning, the Lord doesn't tell you not to do them because they don't work. He tells you not to do them because they're pagan. That's why you don't do them. So, uh, when you have to ask, like, well, what do we think of this? Um, It's wicked. That's what it is. It's wicked. And yes, there are occasions. I'm supposed to just reveal one there. But it double-clicked on me again. Um, Yahweh forbids Israel to use any of these means, not because they don't work, but because they're wicked. Um, There is spiritual forces at work. In some cases, it's mere illusion. In many cases, it's mere illusion. But 100% of the time, it's dark and twisted and from Satan. Peter, James, and John? 
Yes. Yes. So that's not that's not a deed. That's what deeds are for. No. Because <laughs> because the Lord did it. The Lord doesn't do evil. So the the evil is not Sam, you have to understand the evil is not Samuel's spirit coming back. That's not the evil in the scenario. Ever is that the evil? The evil is that some lady who is now on earth through the practice of witchcraft and necromancy seeks to commune with Samuel's spirit. And what also is evident, you have to conclude that it's under God's command that Samuel was allowed to appear. Right? Uh, Even through the practice of necromancy and through this evil medium and things like this, God is going to show Saul what's going to happen and going to hold him to it. And he is allowing this to take place even through such an evil medium as a witch here in this story. And so it's going to give Saul a final revelation about his and his nation's destiny. That All of this is going to be handed over to David and this is going to happen tomorrow. Now... We go back then at the end of Saul's story. So we had David for a brief little period. We had Saul's story consulting the witch. You're going to die tomorrow in battle. Then we go all the way back to David's story. Uh, so in date with David, David says, sure, Achish, I'm going to battle with you. And David gets on his, his horse or whatever, and they go into battle, and they're coming up on their city and all the Philistine commanders look at David and a bunch of these Jews coming up and they're like, what's he doing here? What's with all the Jews here? And Achish is like, oh, David? Oh, David's awesome. Don't worry about him. He's a great fighter. And he loves me, by the way. (laughs) We're totally BFF. And David is going to be awesome and he's going to fight for us. You'll see. And all the commanders of the Philistines are like, no. No, that's not going to work. Because as soon as we get into the battle, David's going to ride out there with us and be like, hey, guys, we're doing it. And then at the last minute, he's going to turn his back on us and kill us. And he's going to catch us off guard or catch us from behind or something. I don't trust him as far as I could throw him. Send him back to Ziklag. We don't need him. All right. So he goes, Achish goes to David and he's like, hey, you know. Uh, this isn't going to work. Sorry, it's not, it's not you, it's them. Uh, <coughs> and so David, David is like, what did I ever do? And he's like, okay, I guess I got to go back. And he's really laying it on thick for Achish. Like, it's not my fault, but okay, if you don't want me to go back. In reality, David has just been spared a lot. Because that is a sticky situation And I don't know that David knows how he's going to get out of it at that moment as he's riding into battle. And then what happens? Well, the people open up their mouth and won't let him join their army. Now, you think that's just coincidence? Or do you think maybe that's the Lord turning the hearts of men? I think think James is right. There's no such thing as a coincidence. And so now we see that the author of the text hasn't arranged this story 
chronologically. He has actually obfuscated, confused the chronology in order to make a point. He has split up David's story when in actuality, David's story happens all entirely before Saul ever consults the witch in Endor. Why do you think he did that? Why would he stop David's story, flash forward into the future to the night before the battle, only to then go back to David's story and deal with what happened with David and the army of the Philistines? Because you'll notice the, the, it's hard to grab the chronology because you're like, how, how do we know? We know Saul was the night before the battle, Right? But then the, the geography actually betrays the story. So in 28.4, the Philistines and Saul are, are located at Shunem and Gilboa. We know that. In Saul's story the night before, they are in Shunem and Gilboa, right? But before that, uh, it's, uh, in David's story, the Philistines are at Aphek. Now I want you to take a look at the map. In Saul's story, it all happens right here. The Philistines have marched all the way up to Shunem. The, the Jews are at Gilboa. Saul goes to consult the witch at Endor. Okay? All Saul's story happens right here. David's story all happens right here. So the Jews, the, the Philistines, have not yet gotten up to Shunem when David's story is going on. Now, why would the author split it up like that? Because both David and Saul are in sticky situations and he wants to show you exactly how the Lord responds to both of them. For Saul, the Lord cuts off all communication with him and tells him eventually that soon he and his sons will actually be killed. And yet David he spares. And it's all by the same enemy, the Philistines. The Philistines are going to kill Saul and Jonathan, pin their dead bodies to the wall at Beth Shan. But David is spared because the Lord turned the hearts of the Philistines when it came to David. So there's this despair that David feels about living in the land, a living away from the land. He tells Saul this, you've cast me out of the land. I can't even worship the Lord anymore because you've cast me out. So what am I to do? So he's out there scrounging around for food and feels desperate. Yet, the author of 1 Samuel wants you to know the Lord is working in his favor. And Saul, who is in the land, who is the king over all, has all communication with him cut off to the point where he then gets a prophecy from a witch that he's going to die, he and his sons, meaning your whole line is going to be torn asunder. So we get this um, passage in the Psalms, Psalm 144, 15, that says, Blessed are the people whose God is the Lord. No matter how complex our situation, no matter how desperate we feel, what a privilege to know that we can go to the Lord in prayer 
that he hears us, that he works in our favor. Because there are those who are in such a desperate position, such a desperate situation, and to whom do they turn? At best. At best. I'm reminded of the place in the Gospels where the disciples come to Jesus and they go, the demons are subject to us in your name. You remember how Jesus responds to them? Don't be amazed by this. Be amazed that your names are written in the book of life. Questions? Go ahead, Timothy. Hold on one second. Timothy, then Bill. Adultery a time or two. Yeah, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Our heroes in the Bible are also sinners, but uh, but certainly we do see the one whom the Lord is with tends to make better decisions when it comes to this. James. Yeah, and uh, when it comes to these kind of things, don't. Um, I would encourage you not to shy away from. The Bible just pretty plainly says. Uh, sometimes you may get questions about witches and how, how, what, is this really you believe? Yeah, yes. I mean, it says what what happened? It's, that's what happened. There's really no problem. Well, what does this say about the afterlife? Nothing. It says nothing. It says that a witch one time in indoor conjured up the soul of. Samuel, by God's decree, allowing him to speak prophecy to a king who was about to die. That's about it. That's what it says about the afterlife. Bill. You mentioned the afterlife. I read a lot of commentaries about this in the Old Testament, and they seem to believe that the spirit of man, the Hebrews did, was eventually killed, which was thought of as being below. Mm. Um, yeah, Let, let's deal with that uh, at, an, at another time. Yeah, because it, that's, a, that's a much more complex topic. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Hey, yeah. <laughs> Heavenly Father, uh, I thank you for an opportunity to be able to go through uh, 1 Samuel and uh, 
really through this whole study to be able to look at the book uh, closely and see the pattern of what you're doing in the life of David and Saul and uh, Samuel and the way you're establishing your kingdom ultimately in Christ, um, the way you are showing us the futility of man's designs, trying to establish your kingdom and execute your rule uh, righteously. We know that Christ is the only one that can do that, and we are so thankful that he has done that for us and that we can be a part of his kingdom in the here and now. We are so grateful for that, and we look forward to the day when that kingdom is consummated um, and we live eternally with him as, um, as we do with each other. We, we look forward to that day. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.